everybody doing this morning? Y'all good? All right, cool. Good. Glad to hear it. I guess we don't have to fake it. If you're not doing okay, I guess you can you can not be okay. That's all right. Um, anyway, <laughs> we're walking through James uh, this fall. We kicked off last week. Pastor Mark gave us an overview of the book of James, and this week we're going to jump into the first passage. Um, before I do that, I just wanted to give a quick recap real quick. Uh, leading into the first passage, kind of what Pastor Mark covered last week. He answered three questions for us. If you guys remember, the first one was, who is James? To whom did he write? And why did James write? So as we're walking through this, I want to quickly recap that. First of all, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He went from what we saw as a skeptic, didn't even believe in his own brother. He's always living in his brother's shadow, right? Hard to be the half-brother of Jesus, the king. Um, <clears throat> but he, we see that he opens his letter by saying he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has been persuaded of the truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. So he went, so this is, um, he, he didn't, I think, I think it's interesting here that he didn't name drop, by the way. He didn't, uh, if anyone ever had an excuse to name drop for their own benefit, it is James right here. James, the half-brother of God. <laughs> it's like, dang, okay. Uh, but he doesn't do that. I think it's interesting that, he, you know, he questioned Jesus. Um, and when he was persecuted, he didn't stand by Jesus. So he wasn't going to name drop when it wouldn't benefit him. So I, don't th I think that he went through the humbling process of, I'm not going to name drop when it benefits me either. Um, even after he's been resurrected and I've been convinced of who he is, um, James just calls himself uh, a doulos, a servant, a bondservant, someone uh, willingly giving themselves in, li themselves in lifelong servitude to someone else as Lord or Master. So that's how he introduces his letter. To whom did James write? He's writing to Christian Jews who were scattered in the dispersion. There was persecution in the early church. It scattered the church out which I think is another awesome thing to think about this. This is a terrible thing happening, but how God used it for good to spread the gospel through the dispersion of these Jews that were sent out. Really, the dispersion is Jews living outside their own land, the promised land or the land um, here in Palestine. They were living outside of there. So they were outcasts. But it's interesting to think about these believers too, because not only were, there, were they scattered and were probably experiencing hostility from Gentiles, but they're also experiencing hostility probably from their own countrymen as believers in Christ, as Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. So we also gain from the letter of James that these is, this is probably a pretty poor people who are being oppressed by the wealthy. And then lastly, uh, by way of recapping last week, why did James write this letter? James wrote into a variety of topics that, and situations that we all as believers face, um, but he spoke God's wisdom into each of those things, all for the purpose of leading the church into a deeper place of maturity in the Lord. So, so James writes for the purpose of spiritual maturity to take place. The first marker of spiritual maturity we see in our first passage that we're going to read today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1 and verse 1, and we'll read that together this morning. If not, you can read it on the screen behind me. 
It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord Jesus, we uh, love you. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have not only to worship you together as, a, as your body, but also to jump into your word. We believe that it's all from you, God, that's profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correction, for training in righteousness. We believe that your word is directly from you. It's God-breathed. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit that authored the words on the page would also speak to our hearts now, God, that you would persuade us of your truth, help us to live by it, by your power. God, I pray that, um, as, as I know, walking in this room this morning, there are a lot of people facing a lot of different trials, even today as they came in here. God, I pray that you would minister to every heart here. God, if we're not walking through um, a season of trial and challenges, we know that they're coming. So God, I pray that you would just train your body up to, to live as believers in your word. God, to respond differently than the world does when trials come our way. God, what does it look like for us as your children to respond uh, as people who have your spirit living inside of us? God, I pray that you'd teach us, that you'd mold us and make us more into the image of your son, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Several years back when I was uh, dating Kara, um, we actually started talking when she was like 13. I was 16. Uh, I was that older guy that was, you know, creepy to all the youth leaders at the church. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, a few years gap. Sorry, making everyone uncomfortable this morning. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, when I graduated high school, she was obviously still in high school, but she was going to this youth camp, and uh, I, I was asked to come help with, like, some of the outdoor games and stuff like that. And, like, you know, I'd love to say that I wanted to go because I wanted to spiritually invest in all the students. But I just wanted to be around my girlfriend. So uh, that was the truth. So I, uh, I remembered getting ready to go to this camp, but I was working that the day that they were leaving, so I couldn't ride up there with the bus and all that. And uh, I told the first service I couldn't really, can't really remember the time frame, but for some reason I knew I had a Dodge Ram three-quarter ton that I could have driven, or I could have driven a moped. Uh, so those are the two options that I had on me at the time. But uh, I can't remember if it's because my license was suspended at the time. The time frame's a little messy in my head right now. But uh, it, by the way, it was just traffic tickets, just speeding. That's the only reason I lost it. Uh, but anyway, I can't remember if that was the reason, which still doesn't make sense because you can't drive a moped either, but just forget that. But uh, it was probably gas prices, honestly. I can't remember. But something convinced me that the moped was the way to go for this two-hour drive in the middle of the night when I got off work. So um, I grabbed my moped. I'd only driven it around town, definitely illegally, never got it registered, none of that stuff. You know, you just skip all that. It'll be fine. So uh, this moped, I picked it up in Arkansas with a buddy, and, like, literally the wires are exposed. The entire body's just off of it. Um, I took this moped, and uh, I was like, okay, so I'm going to try to drive there. 
I remember like not even really knowing the way I, I like tried to memorize it on my phone because it was going to die. And I was like, well, I'll just try to get there. I, I eventually made it. But anyway, so as I'm, as I'm uh, traveling on this moped, I'm wearing this turquoise bicycle helmet, not even a motorcycle helmet, and I'm heading down the highway. There we go. <laughs> so, and if you can see uh, that flashlight up there, that's just a flashlight like duct tape to the top of the, the moped because it didn't have like any of that. So like I had a bicycle blinking light in the back that I taped to it. I think, oh wait, it's not in this picture because this is a different day, but actually one of the students was like, hey, can you bring those boxing gloves you have? So I like duct taped those around the frame of it too. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I'm traveling and it's the middle of the night and I'm not used to driving this thing uh, you know, through the country so much. So I wasn't thinking about bugs at all. So like I've I've got like these little bug eye glasses that I found so like I'll just use those. So I'm driving as soon as I get on the highway, I'm just like eating bug after bug after bug. I'm like this is not good. So I pull over, I'm like what in the world can I get? All I could find was a pair of underwear to put over my face. <laughs> so, so I'm trucking along or mopeding along uh on the highway driving around with this thing, totally illegal, possibly license suspended, I'm not sure. And of course, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, I get pulled over. And I was like, this is not going to be good. <laughs> I don't even know where to start my excuses. Uh, so this guy pulls me over, and I'm just kind of sitting there like, oh, no. So he, he walks around, takes a good look at everything going on, and he's like, <laughs> he, just, he just starts dying laughing. I'm like, yeah, that's about what I expected. But uh, yeah, the guy was super nice. He actually let me off with a warning, which I think he just pitied me. I think he was like, man, this kid is not going to make it over the next week. If he thinks that was a good decision, he's not going to make it far in this life. So I think he was just trying to be nice uh, to me. But the moral of the story is, is that I had joy in pursuing my girlfriend and I would face any trial with joy because I had purpose in it. Like, I, I, would, I would be willing to step past the uh, ridiculous things that it took to get me to that camp. My muffler actually fell off on my drive, too, and it burnt my leg. And I showed up to the campground at, like, 2 a.m., and it was just like, <laughs> I was, like, waking every student up. But uh, anyway, that's beside the point. I keep thinking of more horrible things that happened that night. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you know, just it didn't matter what the trial was. I was able to endure it with joy because I wanted to pursue the person that I cared about. There was joy in pursuing Kara. And I, and I want to say that in this passage, we're challenged with something that I think is an extremely intense challenge. Honestly, it, it could be a little abrasive, honestly. Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy? Really? Even from the beginning, James says greetings, and that word greetings is more than it catches the eye. It actually carries the meaning of rejoice. It's like saying good morning to someone who just lost their job with a big old smile like, good morning. It's like, yeah, it's not a good morning. I just <laughs> it seems a little bit abrasive hearing James speak in this way. But James wants to take us into not just a natural uh, way of thinking, but he wants us to step into maturity as believers. And, and what does it look like when we face trials compared to what it looks like when the world faces trials? So I want to I hit on three things this morning, three questions I want to answer for, for us from the text. And these are, when trials hit, how do you process? How do, how do we process that? 
Secondly, what is their purpose? And lastly, what does it produce? First, let's take a look at how a mature believer is to process trials. Let's read verse 2 again. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James isn't telling us to think positively about trials. Just, just get, get a positive mindset. You can make it through anything, right? Like that's kind of the world's wisdom. There's some like good in that. It's always good to think positively, right? Like there's good that can come from that. We should have a good attitude and all those kind of things. But it's not the same thing as what James is saying here. The way to have joy in trials is not fake it till you make it. It's not to only look at the good and ignore the bad. The word count it, what he means by count it, is we are to process trials objectively. This means not by our feelings, but by the facts of what's true. And what, what, what James is saying is that um, really the root word for count it is hegeomai, and it means to lead. So it suggests that if we carefully consider everything involved, it will lead us to a joyful conclusion. Initially, my response to trials isn't joy. When life knocks the wind out of me, I'm not excited about it. Um, But gaining an eternal perspective on the situation can lead us into genuine joy, is what James is saying. And I I told my wife this last night, I was feeling a little bit, I don't know if anxious is the right word, but um, a little bit hesitant in preaching this message, only because I realized that um, I've not walked through the trials that all of you have walked through. And, and I'm standing here not as someone who has experienced more trial. Than, there's probably a lot of you have gone through a lot more than I have. And we all know that trials just keep coming and keep coming throughout this life and that there's more ahead. So I wanted to handle this with sensitivity, understanding, but, but I feel confident in that what God has said about trials can speak to all of us no matter where we're at. It talks about various trials. There's, there's different sizes, different shapes of trials, and they hit all of us. But how we handle those can be different as believers regardless of what that looks like. So um, I want to point out too, I don't think James, by the way, went around saying, count a joy, count a joy every time somebody walks through a trial. I don't think that was James' attitude toward people. Obviously, he's saying this right here, but we know that um, counting it joy takes an eternal perspective. And Jesus, God in the flesh, had an eternal perspective at all times. But even Jesus, when he encountered trial and loss, when he met with the family, Mary and Martha, when, when they're mourning the loss of, of uh, Lazarus, Jesus steps into that situation with sympathy and he steps into it with a love that led even himself to tears because he saw them mourning the loss of their brother. And, and I think it's important that we don't just think joy in trials is like a Christian psych out that we all try to do to make ourselves, convince ourselves we're okay through the midst of trial. There is still mourning with loss. And, and Romans chapter 12 puts it this way. It says that, re, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to mourn with those who mourn. I think it's interesting too, sometimes the mourning part is easier for us than the rejoicing part, but that's another, another message. But we're to mourn with those who mourn. Like that means that we're not saying count it joy to everybody that faces trials. It means that we're sensitive to those things and understand that they are difficult. It's not our initial response to feel joyful, but what James is calling for is for us to assess things through God's perspective, an objective perspective of what God's doing in and through it. 
and not trusting him that what he has is good and is going to end in good. So Jesus never lacked eternal perspective, but he still showed compassion. I think that's important for us to know as we step into this topic. James also says, he doesn't just say count it joy. He says count it all joy. This means pure joy, unmixed joy, unadulterated by depression or self-pity. It's total joy. That's to say it's not compartmentalized. It's not ignoring the bad and holding to the good. It's evaluating every aspect of your trial through the lens of God's purposes and counting all of it joy. The difference between positive thinking and having an eternal perspective is that positive thinking aims to change the end product, but an eternal perspective aims to allow God to change us through the process. So positive thinking, people usually are like, yeah, I can, I can get a desired outcome by, by thinking positively. And that's, that's honestly true to a point. To an extent, it does affect our situations when we address them with a, with a good positivity. And that's, that's the world's wisdom. And there's, there's some good things in it. There's some biblical aspects to that as well. But the goal is to change the outcome. Whereas joy in trials isn't about changing our outcome. It's about trusting God in the process of what he's doing and entrusting ourselves to what he wants to do in us through the trial. That's completely different than trying to change the outcome. We're just trusting God in the process. So he says, count it all joy when. So that word when, if you guys haven't noticed, uh, he doesn't say if. That would have been a lot nicer, but we all know that uh, trials are coming our way even in the Christian life. Jesus never promised a life of ease to his followers. In fact, in John 16, 33, the second half of it, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So he's saying when. It's a matter of when, not if. We're all going to face trials. Don't be surprised by it. It's easy to be like, really, me? We're like, come on, God. Like, I'm walking through something again. It's like, don't have that perspective. Be ready. Understanding that in this world, we live in a sin-cursed world, broken by broken people, and we're one of them. So there's going to be trial. There's going to be tribulation in this world. But we're to take heart having an eternal perspective that doesn't leave us in the dust of the calamity that strikes in our life, but instead in rejoicing in the purposes and the good plans of God in and through them. So trials in view here aren't, I want to point out to you that trials here aren't self-inflicted. He's talking about, I mean, it could be monetary trials. It could be trials with relationally. It could be loss. It could be an array of things. So many different trials that we face but what specifically is not in view here is self-inflicted trials like sin and experiencing the repercussions from those things. That's not what James is talking about here. That's, that's called uh, discipline of the Lord or natural consequence. And God disciplines those he loves and he challenges us and he chastens us and he draws us back into fellowship with himself. But here, this is stuff that we can't control. This is stuff that happens to us and we can't help it. Trials come knocking on all of our doors, and we, and we are to, as believers in Christ, count it all joy.
by processing them objectively based on facts and through the lens of an eternal perspective. So what is that perspective? It's that whatever our trial is, there's purpose in it. So that leads us to our second question that we're going to answer this morning. When trials hit, not only um, how do we process them, but two, what is their purpose? Look with me in verse three. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The, the word know here has to do with an experiential knowledge. So, so James is writing, you guys have experienced uh, the purposes and the pain that you've experienced in your past. How, how many of you can raise your hand and testify to the fact that you've experienced God bring you out of something that while you were in it, even though it wasn't pleasant, it wasn't easy, now looking back, you see God's hand in it. You see how he's worked through that to impact your life. So many of us have those testimonies. And what James here says is, look, you guys know, like knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, like knowing that there's a good result to the pain that we experience and the trials that we experience. He's, he's saying, uh, knowing that, you know, when you guys had a closed door to a better paying job, it, God used that to draw your family into a better place of dependence on him. Or, or knowing that through the years of your child's rebellion, that when they were pursuing the world with zeal, God would flip that to whenever he, turned, he or she turned to Christ, that same zeal was in place for their pursuit of the kingdom in God's glory. Or, or knowing that the things that have happened to us, the ways that we've been mistreated, that God would use that one day to give in us an extra measure of tenderness and compassion toward those who are being mistreated. God has purpose in the problems that we face. And the problem is that this knowledge that he talks about here, this experiential knowledge is not always complete. Yeah, we've seen fruit from things that God has led us through, but we don't see the end result of everything that we face in this life. There's many things that we have to step out on faith. And I think that James is saying, remember the things that you've seen God be faithful through so that when you're walking through something now, you don't forget the fact that he has, still has purpose in it, even if you don't see it in this lifetime. So James is writing about specifically the steadfastness that it produces that when we, when we remain, uh, when, when we walk through trials as believers. So we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Trials, or this testing, the word is translated from the Greek word dokamian uh, or something like that. And it implies demonstrating the true quality of something under pressure. I want to read to illustrate this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Peter's writing also to uh, persecuted believers. He calls them elect exiles in chapter 1, just a couple verses before this. But he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's that various trials that James speaks of. Verse 7, here's the purpose. Everyone say, everyone say, so that. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of trials is that they test our faith and remove, remove impurities. We can trust that God has purpose in the things that we walk through because he's purifying our faith as we walk through those trials. And, and this purified faith is what leads to the steadfastness, this continuing under, uh, when we remain under uh, the trial, faithfully serving and looking to God. God is cultivating maturity in the believer. And as we're growing in maturity, Peter writes about it here, but we're able to, to what, what's refined is going to bring more and more praise and honor and glory to Jesus. That's why we exist, everybody. Like, uh, we exist for the glory of God. He created us in his image. He created us uh, by his power and for himself so that we could honor and glorify him. And when we're brought into a place of maturity, that also leads us into a place of being able to show Christ to the world because we look more and more like Jesus as we're tested and we remain steadfast in trial. So this testing produces steadfastness. That leads us into our last, our last point. We talked about how do we process our trials and then we talked about what is the purpose of trials it's, that is producing something good. And then this, this last thing is what, what does it produce? Well, what is it, what's the end result of all this? What's the point of all of this? James 1, 4, it says this, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Before I define steadfast and how it leads to the maturity that James desires for his readers to attain, I want to draw attention to the verb at the beginning of that sentence. It says, let, and let steadfastness. It seems really interesting to me that in this passage about dealing with problems and dealing with trials as they come our way, two of the major imperatives and the verbs that we see jump off the page at you aren't, aren't the ones that you would imagine it would be when you're walking through trials, but it's really interesting to me that the first one is to count or consider, to think differently, and the second one is let, or allow, or permit. What that means, uh, along with steadfastness, steadfastness comes through from two Greek words, which means, which is hupo and moneo, which means under and remain. So if you put all of that together, it literally means allow remaining under to have its full effect. Allow remaining under the trial, under the pressure, under all of that, but really remaining under Christ because the steadfastness is already in view here. So the faith of Jesus, we have to remain in a place of dependence on Jesus through our trials. That's what James is calling for. Let steadfastness have its perfect work or here in our translation, uh, its full effect. Let it have its full effect. This means to continue trusting and depending on God through testing without needing to know the solution or the way out. Staying in the midst of a trial with faith. I want to talk about a quick alternative that, that we tend to jump to in trials. It's kind of interesting when you read the text, you're like the automatic uh, implication of trials is that we're going to be brought into maturity. That's not always true, is it? 
Uh, we're not always uh, refined or molded into the image of Christ every time we meet, uh, meet a trial. That's kind of dependent on how we uh, respond to it. So I want, I want us to look at James 1, 12 through 14. So just jump down a little bit here. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a reward in remaining steadfast in trial. That's verse 12. But it makes this interesting shift in verse 13. Catch it uh, with me. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's interesting. It's like, James, what you're talking about uh, remaining steadfast under trial, and then you immediately jump into temptation. These two seem like totally different subjects. But I think what James is drawing out is that when trials hit, we have the option to either remain steadfast or to be tempted to try to avoid the conflict, to avoid the trial. And a lot of times that means compromise. A lot of times that means giving into temptation instead, where God would want to allow a trial in your life so that it would mold you more into the image of Jesus. A lot of times instead of listening to that, we uh, compromise and we run towards sin because it's easier. We find coping with those things that never last, that never actually fulfills or satisfies or any of that. But that's a lot of times what we do as believers. And James is saying, like, we, we, don't, we need to say, like, God isn't the one tempting us. A lot of times we're like, God, why'd you let that happen? It's like accusing God of tempted, tempting you to make a wrong choice because I would have done so much better if you would have allowed me to be comfortable in my Christian walk. But God's like, no, like, these have purposes and it's going to refine your faith and draw you into a place that you would not have been able to get to without the trials that we walk through as believers. So trials can lead to uh, mature faith or to mature our faith or to make it waver. Another way to say that is that trials either produce mature faith or manure cake. <laughs> I got like one really good laugh in first service. Yeah, I know. It's like, you already heard it. I should have changed it. No, that's all right. When trials come, the mature believer, believer's faith remains steadfast in the Lord. So what does this look like? When, when we pray... We, we do pray for deliverance from trials and from situations, from health problems, right? From, for financial issues. It's not that God doesn't desire for us to pray for deliverance or strength or power over our situation, but we don't only pray for God to release us from our trials. Mature faith means we pray that God, through our trials, re- will release in us what he wills. Mature, it takes faith to trust God for power over our storm, it takes mature faith to trust that God has purpose in the storm. There's a whole different step, and this is maturity that James is calling us to as believers. And it's only appealing if we actually value spiritual maturity more highly than earthly ease. It's interesting to look at this passage and you read it. It's almost making the assumption that that is our desire, is that we'd be brought into more and more character and experience God's working in our life and that maturity that he talks about that, that that's going to take place, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's almost making the assumption that the reader desires those things above all else. Because it's not that exciting if that's the result, because the result of that doesn't always mean comfort in this life. 
So it really does weigh into like what what, what is our what is our desire? What is what do we value? When we read this passage, it's only encouraging, it's only exciting when we value God's purposes to be carried out in our lives more than uh, the comfort of life here on earth. I want to look at the last part of verse 4. It says this. I'll read the whole verse. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect is teleos, and it means mature. It doesn't mean perfect, you know, like, in our position, we've been made perfect by the blood of Jesus. He, he, him dying on the cross for our sins. In our position, we are accounted as righteous when we just rest in that. That's salvation. That's justification. But as we're being sanctified, we're being made perfect. That word perfect is talking about maturity. We'll see that in a couple of places. I want to point out really quickly for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying if, if you're born by the Spirit, you think you're going to grow arms and legs by hanging out in the flesh? No, it's the Spirit that's going to produce the maturity that follows the spiritual birth. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, talking about Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul is writing to Colossae and he's saying, guys, my desire, the, the desire of God for believers is that they step into maturity. We hear Pastor Mark talk about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. A lot of times you hear verses 8 and 9 quoted, forget about 10. But 8 and 9, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. We are his work, God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has good plans and purposes in maturing that he desires for us as believers to step into. And this perfection, this word perfect, is talking about that process of maturity, that we may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word complete, I want to mention this too really quick to you. It says, uh, it, is, it comes from two Greek words, holo and kleros, and it means Whole and lot. So that would mean getting the full benefit from the circumstances allotted to us. So we're mature, and as we walk through trials, we're experiencing the full benefit of all the things that God has intended in those trials. And then lastly, in this, in this passage, um, and if Lacey or Ethan want to come up, appreciate it. It says, lacking in nothing. Obviously, this is talking about a believer this side of heaven. We're not to a place in our maturity ever in this earth where we uh, no longer have room to grow. It's not what James is talking about here. But this lacking nothing means, means that when we're in a place of maturity and remaining faithful and steadfast through trial, that means that nothing is going to shift our focus from the Lord who is our supply of everything that we need. So we're not lacking anything when we're directly abiding in the vine because his fruit will continue to bear in our lives. So another way to say that is First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own excellence and virtue. So he says, you might be like, all things pertaining to life and godliness? Really, Peter? Like, I have access to everything? It's like, yeah, 
because his divine power has granted to us all of those things. We have access. Ephesians chapter one says that uh, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meaning that we have access to all of these spiritual blessings right now here in this present reality through Jesus. But the problem is as believers, a lot of times we take our eyes off Jesus and we're no longer uh, experiencing the benefit of what it is to walk with God. But we're not lacking anything when we're placing ourselves, positioning ourselves in a place of dependence on him. I, wanna, I want us to read one, one quick story in Mark chapter 4. Mark's gospel is awesome because it's just a bunch of bullet points. It's like, it's uh, almost like cliff notes of the gospel. Um, but Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, I want to read that for us. It says, On that day when evening had come, he, being Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's a lot in that passage, but I just want to draw out something simple from it that God, God uh, did something incredible. Jesus calmed the storm by speaking to it. Like, that's amazing. He has power over our storms. And when we pray to God, we should continue to have faith that God can deliver us from the storms of life. God is still powerful. The same God of the Old Testament where we read, he split the waters and the Israelites passed through. He still is living and breathing and active today. And he wants to work in and through your situations. But what I think is even more amazing, which... I mean, that's pretty amazing. It's hard to top, but I think what's even more amazing than him speaking to the sea and calming them is the fact that these believers, these disciples, many of them are trained fishermen. They know what they're doing on a boat. They know what a real storm is. They're not, it's not hyperbolic. It's, it's like a legit, a storm that they thought they were going to die from. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, after rebuking the winds and the waves, he actually rebukes his disciples. For what? For being afraid of death? For one, Jesus already said that we'd go to the other side. But I think that Jesus was rebuking his disciples because he was present with them in the middle of their storm. And that wasn't enough for them. I think immature believers can pray for God to have power over our storm. God, remove my storm. But we need to value as a church, as a body of believers, what it is to see God's faithfulness and commitment to us in the storm to trust that in the storm, God is gonna move in a powerful way to mold us into the image of Christ, to develop, to develop us into someone that can speak into others' lives that we would have never been able to if we hadn't walked through the present trials that we're in. So as we look at trials, we have to shift our perspective 
we have to process differently. We got to um, see that there's purpose in the trials that we face. And lastly, we, we, we need to see what it produces. And it's us becoming more and more like Jesus as our faith is refined and we stay. Our temptation is always to leave. It's always to jump out prematurely. But God is working something in and through us in our trial that, that he wouldn't be able to work in and through us if we were outside of it and always walked in ease. Lastly, I just want to, I just want to say this, that our supreme example of this is Jesus, that he, uh, he's not calling us to do something that Jesus didn't do. It says that in Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. That doesn't mean that he was disobedient before, but that he was able to exemplify the obedient life to the point of shedding his blood as an example for us who he would call brothers and sisters. So what we're called into is what Jesus displayed perfectly. And then later in Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, Jesus, or the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which by the way, all of chapter 11, we're reading the endurance and the steadfastness of different believers in different situations. Chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to pray for us um, before we're dismissed. And as I pray, I'm going to ask you guys to pray for a couple of quick things. I want us all to pray Having, having full hearts of faith that God has power over every situation that we face and, and continue praying that God will heal marriages, that God will resolve health problems, that God will mend hearts that are broken, that God will do all of these things that we praise Him for, that we sing about, that we believe Him for, continuing to pray for those things. But I also want to ask you guys to take a step of faith in the maturity that James is calling us into by saying, not only do I ask for deliverance from this storm, God, I pray that you would create in me the work that you desire for my life to mold me into what you want for me through the trial. I want you guys to not just pray for the deliverance from the trial. That's what I typically do. I want us to be a body of believers. God wants us through his word. He's challenging us to be a body of believers who doesn't just respond to the way the world does. Say, God, get me out of this. Say, God, what do you want to do in this? So let's pray for that before we're dismissed. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this time that we've had in your word. Thank you that you're not done with us the moment that we've trusted in you, but God, you take us on a journey through life. God, we thank you that you're present with us in every struggle and every trial that we face. We thank you that you don't call us to joy to just fake it, but God, you, you tell us to have an attitude of joy, trusting your, pur your purposes in it. So God, I pray that you'd be with all of the situations in the room, every trial. God, I pray that you, you would just draw hearts closer and closer to you, God. I believe that this is extremely challenging, but it's not condemning. This word is encouraging if we'll take to heart the fact that you really do have good plans and purposes. God, help us to remember that. God, we pray not only for deliverance. God, we not, we not only pray for physical healing, for 
prodigals to come home and all of these different things that we pray for often. We pray for those things, God, we do. But we also pray that you give us the boldness and, and the level of maturity and trusting you through these problems and these trials that we face to say, God, work in and through me whatever you desire and don't let me out prematurely because I want to be molded into your image. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.